So Matthew chapter 4 was read a moment ago by a guy who's very nervous about reading, and I just commend him. Great job for getting up here and reading it. And it was about people who, their following Jesus means they had to stop doing other things. They left other things to follow. You have uh, Peter and Andrew, they cast a net in the lake. You know, they were fishermen, and they leave their nets, they leave their boats, and they come follow Jesus. There's something they leave behind and they start following Jesus. And then two other brothers, not only does it say they leave their boats and their nets, they leave their father and they leave behind some relationships and they start following Jesus. This is what Christians do. Christians don't just add a new belief into their head. It's like, now I'll suddenly start believing some things about this guy. But when they start, but they don't just believe, they follow him. And in order to follow Jesus, you've got to leave some stuff behind. And I'm grateful this morning, in a small way, you got out of your bed, which was very comfortable on a cold, rainy, dreary day. Although the sun did shine through a little bit today. Sun, that's that orange thing in the sky that's supposed to be up there that we have not seen. You left that cocoon of yours, and you got ready, and you made your way. You left something behind in order to come up here, and something. What, what would compel that? What would compel people to leave their jobs, their families, their lives, their livelihood? What would, leave, what would cause you to leave your home and come up here and join with the rest of us and sit in a padded pew and sing the same words in a melody? What would cause you to do that? What would cause you to listen to somebody drone on and on from Scripture? What would cause you to, it better be compelling, right? It better be compelling. If I'm going to leave something behind and choose this, it better be compelling. And so I want to ask what these guys saw. But what you're doing this morning reflects something from Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to refer to this at the end. Brothers, since we have confidence, I'm assuming you have confidence in what you believe about what we're doing here. To enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, three things you're going to do. They're underlined. Or they were. Let us draw near. We're drawing near right now. Next verse. Let us hold fast to the confession. Let us hang on a little longer to this we believe. It better, we better review it. We better rehearse it because it's got to last another week. And then let us consider how to spur one another on toward love and good works. We're going to re-enter our lives here in just a little bit. You're going to leave this building and go back into your lives. But what you are saying is, I want to start the week this way because when I go back to my life, I'm going to live in a way that's distinct from the people I live around. I've got to live a different way than just anybody in this world. And that's what you came up here for, right? To draw near together, to rehearse the confession, and then to go back and live a life of love and good works to our neighbors. It's better be compelling. What was it that drew these people to leave their livelihoods? And what is it that's going to do, compel you to live a different life than everybody around you? It needs to be compelling. And here's number one, okay, of, that you see from the book of Matthew. Matthew is one of those original witnesses. And he's writing this book to tell you why he believes Jesus is the Christ, why he's worth following and leaving everything behind. And so as we follow his steps, as we see his reasoning, it becomes ours. And the first one is this, Jesus fulfills completely and perfectly all the scriptures of God. The script God gave us of my son who's going to come and he's going to lead you to eternal life and to live abundantly. It, this is the script, Old Testament script and new. And the way he does it is 
Flip back to Matthew 1, if you would. We're not going to read this genealogy. I do at church camp about 3 in the morning when I can't get kids to sleep, because usually by about verse 12, they're out, right? Genealogies. Anybody like genealogy? How many family genealogists do we have here? Raise your hand if you are the family genealogist. There's two or three. The rest of you would never admit it in public. Do you know the one at your family reunion? He starts breaking out the family history, and everybody's eyes gloss over, and they want to hold the babies and go play ball in the park, right? Because this is boring. I have a, we have a family genealogist in our family, and he wants to break out those stories, and everybody just kind of finds something else to do. It's not exciting, Matthew chapter 1, it's all these names, and no, we're not going to read it, but Matthew gives it for a reason, because he says, this is the script of God, whoever comes along to give life and to be the, the Messiah has to be a seed of Abraham and a seed of David. That's an important thing. They have to be the lineage of those two. And what is Jesus? He is the seed of Abraham, he's the seed of David, drawn out there genealogically. But that's not the only thing he does. When he's going to be born, Micah says, in Micah chapter 5, he says he's going to be born in a little backwater town called Bethlehem. So when Jesus is born in Bethlehem, Matthew says, oh, by the way, let's flag it, let's flag it, right? Hashtag prophecy. This is one of them. He's born in Bethlehem. I'm telling you, the script God lays out for us, Jesus fits the script. Not only that, but he's also born of a virgin, which, you know, pretty unique, right? And Isaiah says this is part of the story. He's telling us over and over again, this man is fulfilling scripture. That's one of the reasons why we believe he really is the son of God. And he's worth leaving the nets, leaving the boats, leaving our family, and go follow him for real life. And he's worth it for you, too. To leave whatever you have to leave to follow this man, I'm telling you, it's worth it. And you wonder, right? We have something about Jesus at age 12, but he doesn't come and do ministry till age 30. What happened to the 18 years? That's an, always a question I have. Why so much silence about his childhood? Why did he wait so long? And I'm wondering, did Jesus even know when he was supposed to kick in his ministry? Well, he knows from Isaiah that there's a forerunner God has in mind for him. And until that forerunner comes, he just kind of bides his time. Yeah, he's living a holy life, but he's not doing any teaching until the forerunner comes. And then here comes John the Baptist. And as soon as John the Baptist kicks into gear, so does Jesus. It is God saying to Jesus, time's now. This is the script, your role to play. And then John the Baptist is put in prison and Jesus starts preaching for real. But before he does, he goes up into the north. He goes up into the north, far away from the heart of Judaism, and he starts preaching in the region of, in all those upper northern regions, right? Why does he do that? Because Isaiah said, and Zebulun is where he's going to start preaching. What? Why? Because that's the first group that went into captivity with the Assyrians. And when I put the light back on my people, when I start redeeming my people again, it's going to start right there. And so that's where Jesus goes. He is following the script and everything he does fulfills the Old Testament. And while you might go, well, yeah, yeah, I get that. Guys, it's a big deal. It's one of the big reasons we believe Jesus is all that. That's why we're here this morning. That's not the only thing though, right? He comes along, John the Baptist starts 
baptizing and Jesus is baptized and all of a sudden the heavens open up and there's a word from God. He speaks it audibly, verbally for all to hear. This is my beloved son and I am so pleased with him. Enthusiastically endorses him. Now we are already underway in the political season of 2024. Most of us probably politically would love to get on a time machine and go to next year when this is all over, right? All these ads, all this stuff. But anytime a, a politician has an ad about his own positions, the politician has to go on that ad and say, I am so-and-so and I approve this message. Let them know this, is, this has got my endorsement. Well, what God does in, his, in the baptism of Jesus is God comes out and he speaks and he says, this one right here, this man is my son. I'm pleased with him. Listen to him. Follow him and the disciples do do you think that really happened i think it happened and one of the reasons i believe jesus is who he says he is is because god says he was not only that but then the holy spirit fulfills him and it infuses him fills him up and it says in john chapter 3 remember this the holy spirit came on him in unending measure Jesus was led by the Spirit in a tremendous amount of the Holy Spirit's presence. We also have the Holy Spirit. We are people who walk in step with the Holy Spirit. We live our lives looking for the Holy Spirit's influence and following up. And Jesus had an, a, a, just an unending measure of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, we follow him. Fourth thing, the teaching of Jesus. I want you to look at chapter 4. We're back in chapter 4 again. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then verse 23, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus had a message, a message that was profoundly different than anything ever heard before or since. We believe that the teachings that we follow, that we preach here, that we gather around in Bible classes, the reason we say we don't want to use just a good book somebody wrote that we find interesting, 12 good tips to help you with your marriage, or seven ideas for how to help financially make you more secure. The reason we don't use books like that, but we strive to be a Bible study people, is the material Jesus presented and that God put in his word straight from him, and they are the words of life. Do you believe that? Words of life, not just good advice. Now, we as Christians have to struggle with this because we've had it all our lives. We're so used to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've talked about it all our lives. And we've studied John 18,000 times in our lives. And we, we look at that. And yet we say to people, these are words from God conveying the heart of God and the will of God and lead to real life. We want to say that to the world, but we ourselves struggle to find any time to spend with the word at all. It's kind of a strange dichotomy, isn't it? You believe it's all that, but you struggle to find time with it. What Jesus taught was profound about the kingdom. And it's stuff you won't hear anybody else say. It's stuff like, we, view, we value things different than the world does. Look at the Beatitudes. Rather than going to be wealthy, why don't you be poor in spirit? 
Instead of hungering for position in the world, how about hungering to be a righteous person before God, regardless of whether it brings blessing or not? What about that? That's what we value when we are kingdom people. The kingdom of God is the message that God rules us. We submit to the rule of God and let him hold sway over us. And that means there's going to be some inner desires that we have, and we're going to have some clashing thoughts with what God says. But if he is king, we are saying his message vetoes and overwhelms our desires, our druthers, and our preferences. That's what him being king means. So when Jesus comes on the scene, he says, let me, let me preach the kingdom of God. When God is in rule over your life, this is what it looks like. Your goals will be different. You want to be a light to the world and salt to the earth. We grasp God's intention. We're not just not killing people and not committing adultery, but we are a people we don't hate. We don't act with malice. We don't lust. Boy, the deeper intentions of God, that's what his rule means. We have a different way of responding to other people. When somebody is angry and snaps at me, I don't respond in kind. I respond with kind. I respond with the heart of God. And how we view the Father. The strangest thing about the Sermon on the Mount is how many times he calls God Father. Not just my Father, Jesus says, but yours our king is also our father, and so that, that changes how we pray. It changes how we live our lives. We're not anxious, but we have a father who loves us and takes care of us. And that whole section about not worrying, we, we become people who worry about the fact that we worry, like we're breaking a command from God. But the, the Sermon on the Mount's tenor is not about it's a sin if you worry. It's about you serve a loving God. Why should you worry? Viewing God as Father is just a huge thing that Jesus is the first to ever preach. If we could just get this. This thing is ancient. This Sermon on the Mount is old. You've all studied it all your lives, and yet it's the most incredible teaching anywhere. And it's one of the reasons, I think Jesus preached this wherever he went, constantly. This sermon was preached over and over and over again because it is so revolutionary and 2,000 years later it still is. And I look at that sermon, I'm saying, how does, he, how does he communicate like that? It's not just what he says, it's how he says it. Look at chapter 7. When Jesus finished these things, the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. He was one who taught with authority. He didn't say, well, this is what God says, or this is what Malachi says, or this is what this rabbi says. He says, I say to you, this is how you interpret this. He says so many revolutionary things that in our culture, when Jesus says to us in the Sermon on the Mount, whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery already in his heart. Into a culture that we live in, that is invasive. That permeates everything. Into our social media world, when I say don't murder, I mean don't hate other people and don't speak evil and wickedly toward people and with malice. 
into that world, these words that are so old are still fresh and ever new, and they're still struggles for us. And those who are kingdom people don't just say, well, that's a good idea, we'll live up to one of these days. No, we are people who are kingdom people. We are under the king, God himself, and those words rule our lives. And we never give ourselves an exception to this. We never say, well, one of these, no, no, this is the way our lives are to be run and to be lived according to the teachings of Jesus. And there's one other thing you see in this passage, and it's the miracles of Jesus. We've fallen because of all of it. None of these, by the way, are of, of themselves sufficient. You put all this together, though, and you have, you have a person worth following it's the miracles of Jesus. I want you to look at verse 23 with me again. We started just a moment ago about his preaching, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease, every affliction among the people, every single one of them, long lines of people, and Jesus healing them all. His fame then, so his fame spread. These miracles got him credibility and they got him attention. And people started coming to him throughout all Syria, which is a Gentile area. And they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them all. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. I have never seen a miracle like this. And my question is, but do I believe Jesus did them? You ever seen miracles like this? I'm going to argue in a minute you never will. But do I believe Jesus did them? Do you believe the fact that though you've never seen anything like this, that Jesus, when he was on earth, did this, this commonly? All these people coming from everywhere, and he healed them all. Do you believe that? If you don't, and you struggle with it, you're going to struggle coming up the hill. If you don't, you're going to struggle with why Jesus should reorient your sexual life. There's got to be a compelling reason to be a follower. There's got to be a compelling reason to leave the way everybody else lives and live different. It better be compelling because it's got to last. And it makes you live so drastically different. But it better be compelling. And these miracles, they were compelling. They got attention. They established his credibility and his identity. It was like a verbal demonstration, like a commercial. You see, if I can do this, then these words I say, they're absolutely true. And together, this absolutely affirms everything Jesus is saying. You put all this together, and that man doing that back there, that man living on the same dirt that we walk on every day, that man was something different than anything we've ever seen. His name was Jesus. He was the Son of God. He was the Son of God, and people started following him, and they lived a different kind of life. What do followers do? I can't stress this enough. Don't just be a believer. Don't just be a believer. I'm going to add one more intellectual fact to all my other facts in my head. It just goes in there and it becomes like an encyclopedia. I've got a chapter for this. I've got my Christian chapter and I've got my earthly chapter. I've got all these other... Don't, don't do that. He permeates your entire brain. When you believe in Jesus and you are a follower, you actually do what he says. So what do followers do? And what you see in this passage, followers constantly repent. 
God calls all men everywhere to repent. And this is not just a step in your salvation. It's one of the five steps. It is one of the five steps, but it's so much more. It is a posture that Christians take on. It is a posture that followers have to exhibit because here's the deal, y'all. The more you gather around the Word, and even if you've read it a hundred times, when you read it that hundred and first time, you find something in your life where you're holding out. You find a stronghold in your brain where you're not believing properly and you're not actually doing what He says. You read that verse about gossip and you start looking at your life and you realize there's some areas in my life in which I'm letting that go on. And if he is my king and I am his servant, I don't let that go on. I start repenting. Even if I've read it a thousand times and I, I, I didn't see it before, now I see it and it permeates a little f- more full. You know, Christians should be the most repentant people in the world. We know better than anybody else how meddlesome God's Word is, don't we? Now, if you want to convince yourself you're pretty good, just don't read Scripture very much. Then you'll convince yourself, I'm a pretty good Christian. But the more you read it, the more it just, it gets, it gets you. Even like an Ina Brown, she'll read something during the day in the Scriptures, and it will convict her. She needs to repent. Kingdom people, Repent. And we find things all the time in the scriptures that, we are, that we're just out of step on, and we repent. And then secondly, you'll, we, we need to follow. We need to go exactly where it says. If it says to do this, we need to do it. And sometimes you might have to leave a job. Sometimes you might have to leave a relationship. That's what these guys did. There's some relationships that if you're going to be truthful to God and faithful to God and you're going to follow the steps of Jesus, some relationships are going to have to go and you're going to have to be willing to say goodbye to them to follow Jesus because the more you follow Jesus, the more he takes you away from these other settings. You might have to leave some possessions behind. I know men who can't have internet on their phones and so they got to go back to the old, they got to find one of those old flip phones. You know, you remember those, right? And you're like, who would carry those? I've learned not to ask people why they're carrying a flip phone because sometimes they may tell you. I don't need to have the internet on my phone. And so I want to be able to use a phone as an actual phone and not the internet. And they're doing one of the most noble things. They're repenting of their sin and they're following Jesus. And it means I've got to give up that precious thing that I had before. And I've got to do something a little less, right? Because that's the way I'm going to stay faithful. And I applaud them say, way to go, right? Because sometimes to follow Jesus, you've got to leave some possessions behind. And then... We preach and teach the truths of Jesus. And those are formal words. I mean, our young people, when they go to school, they don't need to preach. They don't need to teach. I mean, that just sounds too formal to me. But what they do, how they live the truth, and and how they answer people, and the conversations, and how how you give advice, needs to be informed by the words of Jesus. Everywhere in the world, they get all sorts of advice about different things. Be true to your heart. That's one of the worst pieces of advice anybody could give you. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind and give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Don't trust that heart. And so the content of of Scripture 
needs to be the content of the words we say in whatever context we are in. And I do know how out of step with our world we'll be if we do this. But for those who are followers of Jesus, their words are words of Jesus. Their tones are the tones of Jesus. Their content of the advice they give is the content of Jesus. That's what followers do. It's not just where your steps go. It's where your mouth issues forth. It's all in there as a follower. And there's one other thing. We do good works intentionally, on purpose, for the right motive. Not to draw attention to ourselves, but we do good works to get an audience for God. We, we want to be people who, who glorify God by showing that this is our life, but we also want to give attention and credibility to the message by being people of good works. Now, you're going to notice some of you older people have heard this kind of stuff before, but I've never preached it. And our young people just don't hear it very often. Those miracles of Jesus are never commanded of us. We're never told in the letters of Paul, go out there and do miracles like Jesus told the apostles to do. When he sent them out on the limited commission, Matthew chapter 10, it says go and do miracles, cast out demons, all that stuff. But those, we are never, the, the latter part of the New Testament, you never see the church being told, you know, do those miracles and get attention. That's just not going to happen. Those miracles don't happen like that. And let me give you two or three reasons why that's true. Because Jesus is the final word. In Hebrews, God spoke in various ways and different times, but now, in these last days, he has spoken to us in fullness through his Son. He is the final word of Jesus. And this is what it says in Hebrews chapter 2. So pay closer attention to what Jesus says, right? Because if you drift away from it, there are no other words. If you drift away from Jesus and his words, there's not going to be any more words. This is it. Now, in the Old Testament, he said the message, you know, declared by angels, that's the Old Testament, they were reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a punishment, a penalty, right? How shall we escape? What's going to happen to us if we take the words of Jesus, the final words of God, and say, nah, forget it, I'll wait till later, and hear something new? There is nothing new. The last word we're going to hear is Jesus. That's the final, full words of God. So be careful about this. It was declared at first by the Lord, by Jesus, and it was attested to us by those who heard him. The apostles who were left behind, they preached it too. While God also, for Jesus, for the apostles, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. He substantiated that message of Jesus and his immediate followers with those miracles. But once they're gone, no more attestation, no more words from God, and therefore no more miracles to affirm them. Now, I used to be resistant to this, right? Because God, who, who, who can tell God what he's going to do? If God wants to work miracles, let him work them. I agree. I'm open to that. But I'm very, very skeptical. 1 Corinthians 13 comes along and says, prophecies, they'll pass away. Tongues, they're going to quit. Knowledge, it'll pass away. It's not going to be a heaven thing. And at some point in time, they're going to fade away. And that, when that which is perfect has come... All that stuff passes away. Now we debate what that perfect is. Everybody wants to know, what's that perfect mean? I'm not really sure the answer to that. But what I do know is it was always meant that these things are temporary. They're going to pass away and not be needed. Next screen. 
And then listen to John. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, and it, make, it sounds like he could have written volumes upon volumes of all the miracles. And you saw in that summary statement, chapter 4, everybody who came to him got healed. Every one of those is worth being written down, but he wouldn't have enough room, right? But these are written. How many miracles did, Jesus, did John record? Does anybody know? Seven. He chose seven. And he said, these are enough. These are enough. These seven are enough, he says, right? That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. I've written down enough of them, and this is not enough. Miracles would not be enough if that was all, but you've got a miraculous, you've got a divine message, a divine messenger. You've got so many other things that we've looked at, but these miracles are amazing. Now, here's the other thing. Look at that real close. Everybody look at that screen and see it. He is saying to us, when we learn about these miracles from the record he leaves behind, that in itself is enough to generate faith. You do not need to see more. And every generation doesn't have their fresh supply of amazing miracles. It doesn't. He says, these are recorded, that you will believe who he is. I've written them down, and just by knowing from the writing of an eyewitness is enough to generate faith in Jesus. You're not going to get a fresh supply in every generation. Second one, my own experience, and I'm going to call upon you and yours. I'm open to the idea God can still do them. And when I mean miracles, let me, let me define this real quick because I have a lot of people I haven't fit, right? You're saying he can't do amazing things. No, he can do a lot of amazing things. And when we pray, God works. Yeah, absolutely. But when he uses certain people who are constantly able to heal, and by doing that, it substantiates a message they have from God. It's just not going to happen. And you, are you everywhere in the world? Are you in Africa where we hear? No, I'm not. And I, I don't expect, but, but listen, I, I remember in graduate school, and one night at the pyramid, Benny Hinn was coming in. Anybody, does that sound familiar to anybody? Some of you younger ones are like, who? Yeah, he was the miracle worker back then and filled up the pyramid with all these people waiting to be healed. We almost as a class decided to go, but none of us believed in it even enough to go. And maybe that's what people would say, right? Well, if you don't believe, you, you can't be healed because you won't come at all. But y'all, when you read what Jesus was like, people lined up from everywhere. Even his opponents acknowledged, yes, he's doing amazing things. We're just going to debate how he does them. But everybody, even people who didn't believe, even they would say, yes, we see him doing these things. And my argument for Benny Hinn was, you are two blocks away from St. Jude. Go there. Then we'll talk. My experience is I just don't see anything like the days of Jesus. Now here's the third one and the final one. I promise is it, and this is why I'm telling you that good works is our thing. When you get the latter parts of the New Testament, you see some, some commissions to us from Titus and to Timothy. Here's how you do ministry. And they're constantly saying, you guys preach, you guys teach. That, that part of the mission is continued. But when he continues it, beyond this, he says one thing. I want to show it to you. Next screen. By grace you've been saved through faith. This is Paul in Ephesians. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship. 
We are God's, like, his, his, his idols in the world, if you want to call it like that. We are his demonstration of God. Creating Christ Jesus for what? Creating Christ Jesus for good works. I want you to show the world me. You are me. You are little me's in the world. And what do you do if you're little me's? You do good works. He never says do a miracle. He never tells his churches, you guys need to be doing miracles, which, make, which I would expect. Next screen. Him telling Titus, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of a glory and a great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and purify for himself a people who are his own possession. They are people like him, which is what? We are zealous for good works. And then finally, Titus 3. And the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit. You've got baptism here. And he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We become family of God. Saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things, preach them and teach them, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to no miracles. I would say to you, I, I do understand why this seems to pale. Our good works would pale in comparison to being able to do a good miracle. But then there's a class on miracles that Blake teaches. And he debates this. We have people debating this, and some of them are wrong and some of them are right. And he mentions that when Sandra was going through that chemo, some of the worst parts, there was this timely text someone sent. It landed at the right spot at the right time from the right person saying the right thing, and it just brought her life. And he called it, Miraculous. Now you could debate that, that word, but I'm telling you, good works do have a miraculous effect. And someone will die and have a funeral. And yeah, I guess a miracle to raise them back to life would be interesting, but I'm going to tell you something they would die again if we did. And after the funeral is over and they go in that room and those ladies back there serve a great meal at the great time for the right reason, that meal has almost a miraculous effect on people. 500 people, members of the Lord's church, because they believe in God, because they've been saved and they want to change a lost and dying world, doing little good works daily has a miraculous effect. And I, I refuse to disrespect God's plan of good works by saying that's not as good as the miraculous. We as followers, we need to be people who repent constantly as we expose ourselves to the Word of God and, and submit ourselves more and more every day to it. And we, and, we, uh, and we read it, we teach it, 
We live it and we do good works. And that is what followers do. You came up this hill for three reasons. Next screen. Next one. There, it's underlined this time. He is so good back there. You've drawn near because you're a follower who knows what Jesus has done for you. He is your high priest, and you've drawn near together on this hill. You've held fast to your confession. We've been reminded and we've rehearsed. What is it about Jesus that makes him worth following? What makes him so compelling? We'll reorder our lives around his word. What makes him so compelling? We've reviewed that today. And so we move on to the third one. Let us consider how to stir one another up toward love and good works. So now we leave. As follow, we came in here as followers of Jesus because what we're doing here is what a follower of Jesus would do. We're going to leave this building and return to our lives continuing to do what a follower of Jesus would do. Walk in the steps of the Holy Spirit. Submit to his word and what you do. Teach and preach and live and give advice and, and, and say words that are consistent with the nature of God. And let's follow him everywhere we go this week. And then next Sunday, as a follower of Jesus, let's come and do this again. That's what followers do. And we're followers. If there's anyone here, you've just held out being a follower. I don't know. Maybe you don't need to come forward. Maybe you don't need to respond because you're not ready to follow. This is not just, again, this is not an intellectual addition to your brain that's going to sit beside something else. This is going to reorient everything else in your head. So maybe you don't need, if you're not ready to follow, don't just stay where you are. But if you're a person who says, I'm ready to follow for the rest of my life this morning, why not do that? Name the name of Jesus, submit, bow your knee to King Jesus and decide I'm going to follow you the rest of my life. No matter what it means, I have to leave. And if that's you this morning, we'd love to witness that as we stand and we sing together.